section of the New Testament are we in now? Epistles or letters, yes. Here we have almost three full shelves of them. But interesting enough, Matthew pointed out in his Wednesday night class a while back that if you add Luke and Acts, you'll have more than in these two shelves put together. More pages of the Bible. <laughs> um, and, the, the, and who wrote all these books here? Paul did, yeah. These are what we call the Pauline epistles, and then we've got the general epistles down here. Hebrews being a question mark as to who wrote it. So we are doing Galatians and Ephesians today. Two books about the same length, six chapters each. And they they don't have a lot in common, but they both follow somewhat the same high-level outline which is a two-part thing. What's what does Paul often have in the first part of his books? Introduction. Well, no, more than that. Doctrinal. Doctrinal, yes. Yeah, he always have you, you always have an introduction, but the first half approximately of the book is introduction is doctrine and then the second half is what? Practical. Yeah, applications of the doctrine. Um, name me some other books we've already covered that have that followed that pattern. Yeah, Romans is actually only one so far that's followed that pattern. First Corinthians did not. Second Corinthians did not. Like Second Corinthians, it's hard to find a pattern at all in that book. That's pretty strange. Um, kind of like First John, I guess. Um, but both Galatians and Ephesians are going to follow this same. First the doctrine, then the practical. Um, but aside from that, that they're they're pretty different books. <laughs> um, So I want to start with a map just so we'll understand where Galatia was. And unfortunately the lines between the these provinces are so faint you probably can't see them at the back, but there actually are lines along here that divide Galatia from Cappadocia and Galatia from Asia. Um, I don't I don't know how precise those lines are. I don't know that we know exactly where these boundaries even were back then. But uh, Paul has certainly been in Galatia. On which journey? Yeah, he started the churches on the first journey. On the second one, he went. He went back the other direction through it. And in fact, he did the same thing on the third journey. Um, and. It depends when he wrote the book of Galatians as to how many times he'd been there by this point. Um, so, you know, we've got Antioch, Pisidia, we've got Iconium, Lystra, Derby, probably those are in, in Galatia. He doesn't, he doesn't specify anything specific in the book, just Galatia. And what was the problem that caused him to write this epistle? Issues about the law, Hebrews, and Gentiles. Yeah, why they have these issues about the law? Right. Yeah, this is a problem Paul had a lot of places. We noticed in First and Second Corinthians, there were these false teachers that had come in, were trying to turn people away from Paul, and and um, Paul, Paul, it was gave Paul a lot of trouble there. Same things happen here in Galatia. Um, 
So normally you have an introduction, but in this case, introduction, greetings, and denunciation. <laughs> it's the only book I know of that starts that abruptly. Just wham. <laughs> Paul was really upset. You really, you really get a feeling for Paul's love for these brethren. Even though he's coming on so strong with them, you understand he's doing it because um, he's just he's just very concerned. And and you you I mean you feel bad that he's going to have to deal with this by letter. I mean it would be much easier if Paul could go there. But and I don't know where he was when he wrote the letter. We'll talk about that. But um, he obviously couldn't. He just had to deal with it by letter, and, and he just felt. So frustrated. Um, how, how are these brethren going to react? Are, the, are they going to listen to him, or are they just going to go on with these false teachers and, and ultimately be lost? It, it, it was it was a big concern he had. Now, the, we don't know where Paul was when he wrote it. He doesn't give us any hint in here in the book, and we don't know when he wrote it. <laughs> um, that some people have taken a guess based on the book that it's most similar to, which is what? Yeah, it, it's most similar to Romans. It really is dealing with the same subject. I mean, Romans is all about salvation by what? Faith. It's salvation by the grace of God based on our faith apart from what? apart from works of the law. That's right. And you have the exact same thing in Galatians. Sometimes you have even the same phrases used. He, he quotes from the book of Habakkuk, which Paul quotes in Romans chapter 1. Um, the only two times in the Pauline epistles where Habakkuk is quoted, it is quoted in Hebrews. So you know, depending on where you want to put that. but um, So if... If, as I think is quite possible, these matters are on Paul's mind, so he wrote both letters about the same time, then that would put the book of Galatians written on his third journey, toward the end of the third journey from Corinth. But if if you say, well, that doesn't satisfy me, I don't think that's good enough, then we'll just have to say we have no idea when he wrote it. (laughs) It could be almost any time. Um, we do know it had to be after his first journey for two reasons. Number one, the Galatians were... He preached to Galatia on the first journey. And number two, he mentions something that happened in between the journeys in chapter 2. And so we know that much. But beyond that, we don't know. Alright, so we'll just... I'm not going to give separate chapters. This We've got five points for a six-chapter book, so this this will be close enough. So the introduction, um, greetings and denunciation. I'll just start with the denunciation. I mean, he's got some not, a few nice things to say in the first five verses, but verse six, wham! I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Wow. <laughs> um, I mean, usually, um, in, in an opening that where 
Paul's writing to the church that knows him, like he did with Corinth. He'll he'll say some nice things about you, you know. I, you know, I've I'm glad I've heard this and that about you, all that. Nothing like that in the Book of Galatians. Just wham! I just you know, I can't believe it. You know, he's saying. Um, and so the rest, the next four chapters, chapter one through four, are all trying to deal with the issue of this other gospel. And everything Paul says has to do with what these false teachers are doing. So, this section called Authentication of the Apostle of Liberty and Faith, kind of big words, but basically he wants to, to demonstrate to these people that he really is who he says he is, which is an apostle of Christ. And see, these false teachers are coming in from Judea Saying, you know, hey, we come from the we come from headquarters, you know, right back where it all started, Judea, and we come from the the original apostles. You know, that Paul, he's not a real apostle. He he's not he he never walked around with Jesus and you know ate with him and all that. And he's not a real apostle. And and Paul, of course, never claimed he walked around with Jesus, but he does claim that he got the gospel directly from Jesus. Verse 12, I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. See, they want to make His teaching second-hand. And if they can make His teaching second-hand, then they're, they're closer than He is because they're coming right from Judea. So He goes into a story of His history, which is very interesting, and, and, and we do pick up some, some details that um, were, were not in the book of Acts even. Um, like verse 17, this is right after he obeyed the Gospel. And what, what city was that where he obeyed the Gospel? Damascus. Damascus, yeah. So he says in verse 17, Nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went, in, went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Now Luke does not even mention that in the book of Acts. Uh, anyone recall what chapter in the book of Acts tells about his conversion? Chapter 9. Yeah, that's real good. <coughs> Here's Damascus. Here's Jerusalem. He saw the light when he was getting close to Damascus. It was in Damascus that Ananias said, what are you waiting for? Get up. Get baptized. Wash away your sins. He did that and immediately, Luke says, he started debating with him in the synagogue proving that Jesus is the Christ. And then the next thing you know, they were trying to kill him and they had to get him out of the city real quick. In fact, how they get him out of, out of the city? Basket. Yeah, let him down in a basket. He mentions that in Second Corinthians. But now he tells us himself that he went away to Arabia, which is not that far from Damascus. Why? I don't know. I mean, he doesn't tell us what he did in Arabia, but he he went there and he came he, he came back. Then he says in verse eighteen, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem. From the book of Acts, you would have no idea that this was a three-year stay in Damascus. But that's what it appears to be. Of course, it wasn't all in Damascus. Some of it was in Arabia. Um, but anyway, but I'm pretty sure that this visit is the one that we read about in Acts chapter 9, where um, he, that he had to get out of, uh, out of Damascus in the basket, and then he went to Jerusalem, and the disciples didn't want to accept him. And, who was it that introduced him to the church? Yeah, Barnabas. Yeah, 
But it, but Luke's perspective on it was he went to meet Peter, Cephas. Stayed with him 15 days. He says, I didn't even see any of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. So then in verse 21, then I went up into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Well, Cilicia is where Tarsus is. And you remember they from, from Jerusalem he went off to Tarsus. Syria is where Antioch is. That's where, and Barnabas was in Antioch. He went to Tarsus to get Paul, or Saul as he was, to bring him to Tarsus, to, to Antioch to help with the work. So, this is matching up with the book of Acts, but we're getting a different perspective on it. And again, the point that Paul's making, Paul's not trying to give us the whole history. He's, he's just trying to say, I didn't get these things from the apostles. I didn't have time to get these things from the apostles. The most time I spent with the apostles was 15 days. I got this directly from Jesus. So, um, let's see here. On into chapter 2. This is still the same point. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. Now this is the story told in what chapter in the book of Acts? 15. Yeah, we call this the Jerusalem Conference. He had finished his first journey... He was telling all about how the, the Gentiles would obey the Gospel. And some Judaizing teachers were there from Judea and they said, those guys got to get circumcised. they got to keep the law of Moses. And Paul said, no they don't. And the Antioch church says, you guys go down to Jerusalem and get this resolved. And so he took Titus. Titus, Jew or Gentile? Gentile. Yeah, he was Gentile. Um, Timothy was the one that was both. Um, Titus was all Gentile. And what the Judaizing teachers want done with him when he was down there? Yeah, he's got to get circumcised. He claims to be a Christian. How can he be a Christian without being circumcised? And Paul said in verse 3, no, not even Titus was compelled to be circumcised. And, and so the Galatians need to realize that Paul has already been through this on their behalf. He's fought this battle. And and in the end of it, as you recall from, from Acts 15, and Paul saying the same thing here, the apostles agreed with, with Paul. Um, so then he tells a story starting in verse 11, which is not told in Acts at all. Sometime after that conference, Peter came up to Antioch, and there was a problem. What was the problem? Yeah, and he was eating with the Gentiles until when? <clears throat> yeah, Jewish Christians came. And can you believe it? Peter gave in to peer pressure. Um, and Paul was the one that called him on it. And it was such a serious matter. So many brethren were being led away by what Peter was doing that Paul rebuked him right from the front. I mean, it was a public rebuke. And that's that's... We have to understand that's not supposed to be the normal way you deal with a sin someone's committing. But there are times when it has to be done that way because the sin itself was public and it's going to lead people astray, so that's the way Paul dealt with it. And I assume Peter repented or else um, I don't think we'd have the books of First and Second Peter. <laughs> um, but all Paul talks about is what he told Peter, um, the rebuke he gave to him. And in verse 19, he says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. 
I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Later on, he's going to say something similar to that. Um, the, we don't become righteous by keeping the law. Because if you could become righteous by keeping the law, then why did Jesus need to die on the cross? It's a good argument. Alright, so then chapters 3 and 4, justification of the doctrine of liberty and faith. More on the same subject, but instead of just dealing with Paul as a, an apostle directly from Jesus, we're now dealing with the doctrine that it, the book of Romans deals with in much greater depth, and that is we are justified by the grace of God through faith apart from works. So he begins in, um, in chapter 3, I'll start in verse 2. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And he's talking about when they first became Christians. Of course, back then, they, the Judaizing teachers weren't around. So, of course, they received the Spirit by hearing with faith. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? <clears throat> this is an important principle for all of us. And that is that God does not have two ways of justifying us. Uh, and I think a lot of Christians think that. That when we become a Christian, there's one way, and that's by faith. But later on, there's another way, and that's by works. It's by faith the whole way. Now, we, again, we understand that the faith that, that we're talking about is a faith that works. And any, anybody who goes, who goes very long as a Christian, it isn't showing fruits of the Spirit basically is showing they don't have faith. But there's a difference here. And that is that the works are not what make you right in the sight of God. It's the faith. And the, the, it, countless numbers of Christians have been tempted to turn over and start relying on their works. That is a completely unstable foundation to rely upon. None of us can stand before God on the basis of our works. We couldn't back when we became a Christian... We cannot now, 30, 40 years later. And that's the point he's making to these Galatians. You started by faith. It worked fine from that then. Why are you changing now? Verse 6. Now he's going to go to the Old Testament. I mean, since these guys are Judaizing teachers, the Old Testament means a lot. He, he's, he's doing the exact same thing he did in the book of Romans. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Paul really dwelt on that in, in Romans. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. See, he's trying to cut the, the, the legs out from underneath those Judaizing teachers. That they were saying, oh, we are descended from Abraham. And if you want the blessings we have, you've got to get circumcised because Abraham was circumcised. Well, this, of course, this verse Paul quotes was before Abraham became circumcised. <laughs> and he was made righteous by faith. So he says, do you want to be a son of Abraham? Have faith. <laughs> and that leaves the Judaizing teachers out of the cold. <clears throat> verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. 
Now, how many people have ever abided by everything written in the Law of Moses? Only one, that's right. (laughs) Everyone else is cursed. Then, in, in verse 11, he quotes, this is the Habakkuk quote, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Even in the Old Testament, it says that, the book of Habakkuk. All right. Um, I'm going to have to skip some of this or we're going to run out of time. But um, Verse 18. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted to Abraham by means of a promise. Now, in the book of Romans, Paul uses the word grace. He says the reason it's on the basis of faith is so that it can be by grace. If it's on the basis of works, then it's a debt. Um, so now he's, he's talking about a promise. Who did God make that promise to? To Abraham. But he's saying, and, and Abraham received the promise by faith. And he says, that if, if the gift to you Galatians, if the gift to us Gentiles today is going to be by the promise, is by faith, not by the works of the law. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? He had to answer that same question in Romans. May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. What Paul is saying is, it's impossible for any law to give life. That's why Jesus had to come and die for our sins. Verse 22, But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And then in verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That's where our righteousness comes from. We're putting Jesus on. It's not us. Not our works. It's, it's Jesus. Alright. Um, chapter 4. Still in the same section. Um, in the first seven verses, he, he, he compares the state of God's people in the Old Testament. They were heirs of the promises. All the Jews in the Old Testament basically were heirs of the promises to Abraham. But, they were like children who haven't reached their, the age of majority yet. And, and you know how some, if, and this is real popular in some of the old books, you know, the 1800s type books, you know, the parents will die and the child is left. The child's a teenager. He inherits everything the parents own, but he can't touch it until he turns 21. And in the meantime, he's got um, someone who's in charge of him that he has to obey. So he's he's an heir, but he says he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's the owner of everything. That was the state of all those Jews in the Old Testament. They were heirs, but they hadn't hadn't reached the age when they could actually inherit. So finally, when God sent His Son, Jesus, to die for our sins then we can be truly adopted as sons and now we really do inherit. So Paul's saying, don't go back to the Old Testament thinking that's you know, the way to become an heir. <laughs> that was, the, the law was for, for when people were not yet of age. 
So in verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons of years. And years, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Why are they observing days and months, seasons and years? They were obeying the Mosaic law. Now, we have to understand that people can pull a verse out of context and really abuse it. Paul is not saying it's a sin to observe days, months, seasons, or years. In the book of Romans, chapter 14, there were people doing that, and he was basically saying that's okay. What was wrong with the Galatians doing it? The Jews were Right. They were making it a requirement in order to be saved. If we do that today with days, months, seasons, and years, we're sinning. But if somebody wants to if someone wants to set aside a special day, saying this day is just for God, I'm setting it aside to him. That's fine. As long as he doesn't start saying, Oh, now I'm more righteous than you are because I'm doing the law you're not doing. Uh-uh. <laughs> we're all righteous for the exact same reason on the exact same basis. Faith. We're not righteous because you know I'm keeping more of these <clears throat> rules and regulations than you are. Either we have faith or we don't have faith. <clears throat> then in verse 13, Paul talks about back when he visited them the first time. And he tells us something we don't learn about from the book of Acts. The, the reason he preached to them the first time was because he had this illness. I, I have, you know, I don't even know what the illness was, although he says, you know, I, I tell you, you would have, if you could have, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me, and maybe he had an eye disease. But for some reason, he couldn't go on. I don't know if this is one of the cities he meant, that Luke mentions in the book of Acts, or is this a, is this a different time? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, but the only reason Paul brings it up is just to show that back then you thought the world of me. And he says now, verse 16, so have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? <laughs> they didn't like what Paul was telling them, and that was because of the Judaizing teachers. He says, you thought I was great back then. Is telling you the truth going to cause you, me to become an enemy? And then he points, talks about those teachers themselves. He says, they eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. Their motives were bad, is what he's saying. Alright, I'm going to have to skip the allegory here and end of chapter 4. It's interesting, but we're running out of time. Um, chapter 5, the practice. Now here we get into the practical in verse 5, in chapter 5. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Um, but that does not mean that when we say, oh, I've got freedom, hey, I can do whatever I want. You know, you can't tell me what to do. And, and Paul works hard on that. Um, let me see if I've got a verse on that. Um, Oh yeah, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and I'm again kind of jumping down, but I want to look at verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit. 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. There's another thing that's not with such things. You can't get someone to have these things solely by a law. I mean, imagine, how would you, how would you word a law saying, you shall be joyful? <laughs> how, could you, how could you do that? You shall be peaceful. Patience. Is are some people patient and some people not patient? Well, some people have more than others. <laughs> there's really no limit to how, how much we any of these things, there's no limit to how much we can get. I mean there's not a one of these things that any of us can look and say, kindness, I got that down. <laughs> None of them that we can't have more of. And and this is it's a wonderful difference between a law based system and a faith based system. Yeah, Ron. Um, at my work, we have a law which didn't come to work from So it's just funny that you can you can look at kind of the negative side of this and you can't create a law for it. But you can't you can't make it come to work happen. But if you come to work in a bad mood I can't see. <laughs> yeah, and if you want to go in a little bit deeper, the truth is you're not telling them they can't have a grumpy attitude inside. They just can't show it outside. <laughs> These things go; they'll go inside, and that's the beautiful thing with the fruit of the spirit. All right. Um, well, chapter six continues the same section. He talks about if someone's caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore him. Bear one another's burdens. I mean, all these things. Wonderful ways to use our liberty in Christ to serve one another. Um, And so then finally, the last section, the final greetings, Paul writes in his his own hand. He he was dictating up to this point, but he writes in his own hand at the very end. And... um, in verse 12, he says, Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now he's really getting down to what their motivation was. Jews hated Christians. They hated Jewish Christians. But if these Jewish Christians could convert Gentiles to Judaism, hey, no, they don't get persecuted. And that's what their goal is. Look what Paul says at the end in verse 17. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Where did he get those marks from? Yeah, mainly from Jews whipping him. Yeah, although sometimes it was Romans. Paul, what Paul is basically saying is, I've suffered lots of persecution. I'm not trying to do anything for you, brethren, to avoid persecution. Therefore, the conclusion you draw is he's doing it out of love, which he certainly was. And then the last question is on Galatians. All right, we got one. We got another book to cover, and that is Ephesians. This is the third journey of Paul, and here's Ephesus. Ephesus, he spent over two years there, and I think that's longer than on record for any other place he spent in any of his journeys. Which brings up a very strange thing about the book of Ephesians. Because the book of Ephesians 
has absolutely no personal greetings at all. He doesn't name a single person he knows there. He doesn't say, you know, say hi to so-and-so, say hi to so-and-so, like he did at the end of the book of Romans. Furthermore, he talks like they don't even know him. Um, look in verse, chapter 3, verse 2. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, um, other places he, he talks like he doesn't even know them. He says, you know what? I've heard. I've heard about you. And there's one other odd thing that goes in with this, and that is that if you notice a footnote on um, verse 1 where it says, at Ephesus, your footnote will say, I think the three, three very early manuscripts don't even contain the word at Ephesus, that phrase. And what, what scholars have deduced from this, and I, and I think they're probably right, is that Paul did not write the letter to be just to the church at Ephesus. He wrote it to be for a number of different churches, probably in the Ephesus area. Um, we know that he sent this at the same time he sent the book of Colossians by the hands of the same, uh, of, of the same guy. So it's, um, at least I think he did. Um, so it's probably, it's going to have to be somewhere in this area. And no doubt the Ephesians read it as well as the rest of them. But Paul wasn't writing it just to that one church. It was a more general thing. So this is a very unusual letter in that it's not, it's not a personal thing. It's, it's more of a, um, it really is a sermon. And, and, and a marvelous sermon it is. Uh, I don't really have anything to say about the greetings. But starting in verse 3, he begins a paragraph of praise to God. I'm sure most people find Ephesians a very difficult book to read. I mean, in fact, in, in, well, I've been told that in some of the Greek, in some Greek editions, uh, in the Greek that Paul wrote, there was no punctuation. But in some Greek editions, verses three to fourteen are all one sentence. <laughs> that's that's pretty bad. <laughs> Um, so you know he's got you know phrase after phrase after phrase uh, tacked onto this big long sentence. Of course, in English, it's you know, there's lots of periods in here, so we couldn't we could not handle a sentence that long. Um, but it just gives you an illustration of, of I mean, Paul is so full of wanting to praise God, and the whole book is really a book about praise to God and the consequences uh, of that praise in our lives. Um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so in verse 6, he again talks about things God is blessing us with. To the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Who's the Beloved? Jesus, yes. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of what? His grace. Yeah. This is a whole section about the grace of God and, and, and all the wonderful things He's done for us. See in verse 8, which He lavished on us. I mean, what a word, lavish. Isn't that great? He lavished His grace on us. And it goes on like this. And, and Paul is just so excited, so full of, of the wonder of what God has done in Jesus. And so in verse 12, he's talked about to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ will be to the praise of His glory. Who is He talking about that were the first to hope in Christ? 
Jews, yes. So in Him you also, he's writing to a Gentile church, in Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. This is all part of the praise to God because God's the one who did this. Alright, so then he has a prayer in verse 15 and it's very interesting to think about what Paul prays for. And what will, I mean, if, if we were thinking of some Christians, what would we pray for them? Would we pray that they would be in health? Paul prayed for um, the guy he was writing to his second in, um, in third John that he prayed that he would be in health. Um, you know, all, would we pray that they'd have enough food? I mean, all kinds of things we can think of. But what Paul prays for here is. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance? And they say, what He wants them to know is all the things He's been, he's been praising God for. <laughs> and you can read those 14 verses. You can even memorize them. And you've got a long way to go to know these things. It's something we have to live to, to really know. Um, Verse 19, And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might. For us to really know the power of God that is working in us, why would we worry if we had that kind of knowledge? Yet we do worry. We need Paul's prayer for us too. In verse 22, He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. He's going to have a lot to say about the church. Now, um, generally, in, in the book of Ephesians, when He's talking about the church, He's talking about everybody that's a Christian, not this one congregation. Um, when you put everyone together, all the different Christians, they're the body of Christ. And, they're, and the purpose of the church is to praise God. And, and that's what He continues talking about as he goes into chapter 2 steps toward the fulfillment of God's purpose Um, in chapter 2 he talks about how um, they used to be in the world they walked according to the power of the prince of the power of the air the spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience and in verse 3 among them we too all formerly lived we being Jews I think but God was rich in mercy and He, he saved, saved them, saved us. Um, verse 7, So that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is using the church as a way to show who He is. It's very, I mean, the Bible from beginning to end is about God. It's all about God. And when we start thinking it's about anything else, or especially when we start thinking about us, we're way off the base. God is showing the riches of His grace to us so that everyone can see what kind of a God He is. And He says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. Our salvation is a testimony not to well, I'm sure glad that I was, you know, had enough gumption to do what God said. You know, I, I'm really glad. It's not about me. It's about God. 
who showed his grace to me and showed his grace to you. And, and of course, it, later on in the book, Paul was going to urge us to live like that so that when other people see us, they'll see the glory of God and they'll praise God. That's what, how we're supposed to be living. Jesus said, you know, you're a city set on the hill, so forth. Um, um, let's see here. I'm going to have to again. <clears throat> he talks in verse 13 about how they were far off, they were brought near. He Himself is our peace. The peace He's talking about here is between Jew and Gentile. They had been enemies for, for centuries. But God has united them. And, and, and unity is a big theme as well in, in, this, in this book of Ephesians. Um, but I want to look at verse 21. In whom the whole building, being fitted together, what building is He talking about here? The church. It's a building. It's growing into a holy what? Temple. Aha. You remember Paul talked about the church at Corinth was a temple when he wrote to Corinthians. And our bodies are temples. He talked about that to them as well. The whole church here is a temple in whom you also are being built together into the dwelling of God in the Spirit. God is dwelling on earth in His temple. And we're a part of that temple. And, and that, that's what our November lectures are going to be about. So I'm not going to steal the thunder too much for, <laughs> for Justin. <coughs> I'm sure he'll be reading this. Probably, probably he'll be reading this very passage when he gives his lecture on, in, in November. All right. Um, well, still in the same section, chapter three. Um, in verse four, he talks about by referring to what he's written, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And the mystery, just to summarize it briefly, is God was in Christ, unifying everything together. Jews and Gentiles bringing them all together. It's just wonderful. Um, we've talked before about a mystery is something that. That it has to be revealed for you to understand. And Christ revealed it to Paul. He wrote it down. Um, and so in verses 14 through 19, he again prays the same, same prayer. So they will understand, comprehend the height and the breadth and the depth of the love of Christ. And in verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we. Ask or think according to the power that works within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now the practical side starts. Um, and so, He wants us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. He has lifted this doctrine up so high in the first half of the book. Now He's saying, okay, I want you to match that with your lives. Oh, wow. Let's <laughs> talk about a high calling. Um, one thing is in verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. If God's great work was to unify Jew and Gentile, then surely He would want us to be unified. I mean, if we say, well, you know, I'm not putting up with that. I'm out of here. That's not showing the grace and the wisdom of God at all. And and that and you know we're 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 really doing a lot of damage to the temple of God, and, and how can we expect God to dwell in a temple that doesn't reflect His glory? He says there is one body, one spirit, and so on—a whole list of ones there. And then he talks about gifts and uh, by grace in verses seven and following. He's given different people in 
the church, different <coughs> gifts, so that they can all put them together and benefit the whole body. And that, we had the same thing back in 1 Corinthians. Um, then in verse 17, don't walk like the Gentiles walk. Of course, they used to be like that too. Um, so in verse 25, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. Not the way Gentiles usually walk. But be angry and yet do not sin. Uh, this person stealing must work so he can give to people that have need. Um, so on and so on. In, in chapter 5, um, he talks about sexual sins, and of course, which is a big problem with the Gentiles, big problem in our society too. Um, and then in verses 22 through the end of the chapter, he has a very unique section about marriage. And he compares the relationship between the husband and the wife to what? Christ and the church. The husband represents what? Christ. The wife represents the church, yes. And so each one has a different responsibility in the marriage, but each has a very difficult task to reflect. I mean, imagine here, every one of you that's married, you're reflecting God's plan of the ages, Christ and the church. Wow. Then in chapter 6, let's see here. Look behind, sorry. Chapter 6, um, he, address, he talks to children in verse 1. In verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So I've seen some fathers that behave that way toward their children. They, the fathers would just say, well, I'm just, I'm just teaching them what's right, but they're really just provoking their kids to anger. And it doesn't, you can see what happens when the kids grow up. Um, he talks to slaves, masters. Um, he has the armor of God here. Which um, we've had sermons on that. We, I think we had a lectureship on that even. Um, take up the full armor of God. And let's see here. And then finally, at the very end, verse 24 Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Any questions on Ephesians? All right, next week we do even more. We're going to do three books next week. <laughs>